Well, tonight we're going to do something just a little bit different in that, so when I went to school, I was trained to be an expository preacher. That's kind of preaching that we typically do around here. We look at a text of Scripture, we work our way through it, we let the text define the message, the parameters of the message, and try to teach what's in the text and apply it to our lives. But my preaching professor did tell me, boys, you know, once a year, if you want to preach a topical sermon, you can do it as long as you repent quickly afterwards. And so tonight is the night, all right? And I'll be honest with you, this is a message that I've preached before, but it's just something I've been thinking about the past couple of weeks, and it's uh, something I came up with years ago, and and I, I really think it's just a good reminder for us. So tonight, we're going to talk about John Wayne Christianity, all right? John Wayne Christianity. I remember, I, actually about two weeks ago, I had a day, I, I, don't think, I think the weather was bad, and I wasn't feeling real good, and I think I, or may, maybe they were gone somewhere or something, but I sat around for the biggest part of the day, and I watched a bunch of old John Wayne movies, and I like them, okay? If you don't like John Wayne, then either you're too young or you got something wrong with you, I don't know. One or the other, okay? I, I love John Wayne movies. But I remember one in particular. It was his last movie. Anybody know the name of John Wayne's last movie? Do you? The Shootist, that's right. The Shootist. It was a movie he did with Ron Howard. And uh, great movie. And if you, rem- and, and if you remember, the re- when this message, when I originally uh, kind of developed this message, I had seen that movie and it just spawned this thought in my mind. Because in that movie... At the beginning, and then at different points throughout, right, John Wayne's this old gunfighter. He's dying of cancer, and he's kind of trying to help this woman and her son and all these things. But he has in this, his character's name is J.B. Books, and he has this ethos, right, this motto that he lives by. And his motto goes something like this. He says, I won't be wronged. I won't be insulted. I won't be laid a hand on. I don't do these things to other people. And I require the same from them. Now, when I read that or I see John Wayne say it on a movie screen, I'm like, that's right. That's right. I like that. I can get behind that, right? I'm not, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want anybody to wrong me or insult me or do me wrong. I'm, and and I'll, I'll do something about it if they do, right? Yet, if we take that and we were to make it into... And I think it has been made into a lot of times. Uh, We brought it into Christianity and tried to make that somehow fit into the mold of what it is to be a Christian. We would be in desperate trouble. And if we're not careful, what we do a lot of times is we take our own philosophies, okay? This is how I want to live, okay, a lot of times in my my flesh. It's how I I would like to live. But is that the right way to live according to the Scriptures? It sounds good to the quintessential American. It sounds good to the gunfighter on the TV. But I would say for a Christian to try to live in the midst of that kind of attitude would be poisonous. In fact, I would say it's the kind of attitude that has destroyed churches. It's destroyed families. It's destroyed the witness of Christians to the world. And so I want to see... I want to bring it to your attention, see how the Bible would answer these kinds of attitudes. And I know 
nobody's trying to start the church of John Wayne, okay? I understand that, but I think these attitudes are prevalent. I think they're particularly prevalent in the culture in which we live, kind of in the southern United States and in a smaller town setting where we kind of hold on to these ideals. And we got to be careful that we don't let our kind of so-called American ideals become doctrinal points. Because if we look at what this in fact says and we compare it to the Scriptures, I think we'll be surprised. How does he begin? He begins by saying, I won't be wronged, right? I won't be wronged. That sounds good. I don't want anybody to wrong me. I don't want anybody to wrong you. I, I don't want people to be taken advantage of, harmed, hurt. And yet, if my attitude is that if anybody wrongs me, I'm going to respond in kind, I'm going to go back at them uh, with the full force of who I am, we better examine that. Because in 1 Corinthians 6, 7, the Bible says this, Now therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? That's what the Apostle Paul says. Now, let's make sure we take these scriptures in context. In context of what Paul's saying, he's talking to the, churches, the church of the Corinthians and apparently what had been taking place in Corinth is that there were Christians who were taking each other to court over whatever their problem was. And Paul's point is, if two Christians can't get together and work something out, even if it needs the help of somebody, in the, a fellow brother or sister in Christ to help them work out a solution that is right before God and man, then we've got a serious problem. He says, it would be better, rather than a Christian take another Christian to court and put this show on before the world, it would be better for you to just be cheated than for that to happen. That's how much of a stain Paul was saying it would be for people who are supposed to be brothers or sisters in Christ to not be able to work it out among themselves. Now, I understand there are times when somebody says they're a Christian and then they, they do things that are so clearly unchristian that... Maybe there's not an alternative. But Paul's speaking about people that are claiming and seeking to live in obedience to Christ. They ought to be able to come to an understanding. Paul says elsewhere in the book of 1 Corinthians, when he speaks about love in that famous love passage in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, Love does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. In the NIV, the, 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 instead of saying it's not provoked, the NIV uh, renders it this way, it keeps no record of wrongs. Right? If we get this attitude that I'm going to refuse to be wrong, and if somebody wrongs me, they're going on the list. And, and y'all know them people, and you may have been one of them people, I've been one of them people. It, if you're on my list, we got problems. And it may not be today, and it may not be tomorrow, but don't give me a chance. That's not a Christian attitude. If we're going to seek to live as Christ lived, we're going, to, we're going to keep no record of wrongs, particularly here among the brethren. In the life of the church, we should never be those that are trying to go tit for tat with one another. Insult for insult, jab for jab, whatever it is. So if we go into the world with an attitude of I won't be wronged, we're 
setting ourselves up to be disobedient because Christ was wronged greatly. Greatly. And this is the example that we are called to follow. What about the next part of that? I won't be insulted. If you want to go through this life and not be insulted, you better be something besides a Christian. Particularly in this day and time. If you want to go through this life and and not be insulted, you better be something besides somebody who says, I'm going to try to do what the Bible says. I'm going to try to point other people to do what the Bible says. We're going to be insulted. In fact, we're promised that. In 1 Peter 2.23, speaking of Jesus, Peter says this, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Again, I'll read a different translation. A different translation gives, this, gives it this way. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. I'm here to tell you, and I think you know this, most of y'all in this room tonight, y'all have lived in this world for a little while. You've seen a few things. And if you've paid attention, you've seen the, the trend in the world. And the trend in the world is not that it's getting more friendly towards biblical truth. The trend in the world is not that they are getting more, you know, that they're, they're tolerating the, the views that we claim to hold. I'm going to tell you something. A friend of mine sent this to me yesterday. And, and I, I don't know the name, so I won't call it and make anybody mad. But I can tell you this. There was a Republican politician, I believe, in the state of Ohio. Another Republican politician in the state of Ohio posted a message on the Internet. And all she said was, There is no hope for anyone in this world apart from trusting in Jesus Christ or something of that nature. She was speaking against some events about something that, something that had gone on that was pretty bad and just said, the only hope we've got is Jesus. Pretty standard Christian statement. Another uh, Republican legislator jumps on there and says, I can't believe you'd post this. You need to take this down. Uh, religious freedom is extended to all faiths in this country. She didn't say nothing bad about anybody else. She clearly stated her belief that Christ is the only hope. And if you've got an idea that there's hope somewhere else, you better check and see whether you're a Christian or not. Because the the uniqueness of Christ is one of our doctrinal foundations that there is no other way to peace with God other than through repentance and faith according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this, we live in a world that if we, if we seek to be who we say we are as Christians, then what we're going to see is this, these kinds of things on the increase. And I've been accused at times of going heavy on the topic of persecution. Okay? And, and that's probably true. But I'm going to tell you this. I would rather the people that sat under my preaching as a pastor through my life 
if things really do get very serious for God's people in the days to come, to be able to say, you know what, Brother Russell warned us about that. He told us over and over again that it was promised and it's probably going to come and we need to be prepared. We need to have our heart prepared for these kinds of things. Because I've seen some, seen some of that stuff secondhand. I've, I've been and, and I've met men that have lived through intense persecution. Men who've lost loved ones. Men who've been in prison for their faith and for their faith alone. And so I think we had better just be comfortable with getting insulted. Because it's, if you hadn't been insulted for your faith, hang on to your hat because it's coming. The next piece of this little ethos says, I won't be laid a hand on. Well, this is where I get in trouble, folks. I don't know about you. Okay, wronged. I can live with being wronged. Insulted, I've been called worse things by better people, as my friend used to say. But you're going to put your hands on me? Hang on just a second. Hang on just a second. Now, I don't think we ought to just let somebody hurt us if we can stop them. Okay? But I don't think we should uh, go out of our way to uh, overindulge uh, we can protect ourselves and protect the innocent in particular. But we better be careful when we start talking like this. Ain't nobody going to put a hand on me. Hang on just a second. Hang on just a second. What's the, what's the Bible say? Mark 13, 9 says, But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You'll be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. We talked about this actually in the Gospel of Matthew just a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? The promise of Christ to His disciples in that, that moment in time was, you're going to be beaten. They're going to put hands on you. And there may come a time when they do that to us and we can't in fact stop them. I believe in self-defense, all right? Particularly as it relates to the innocent. But I'll never forget a story told to me by a missionary that I, that I had classes with. He was an older guy. He, he, he had returned from the mission field for a period of time. He was taking some seminary courses. He'd been in some rough places in the kind of the wilds of South America. And he told me one time that when they were down there, they got in kind of a tough situation and he said it's pretty rare for my wife to be in the bush with us but she was there because of the project we were doing and I guess when it when it was kind of going on he said I, I she realized that I was kind of gearing up for, for to fight and when it was all over we, we got back to our home kind of back towards the city and she said were you getting ready to kill those people those men if they had tried to do something to me he said, you better believe I was. And she said, she said don't, send, don't, don't, uh, don't give somebody a first-class ticket to hell in order to keep me out of heaven. Now, I don't know if I should have that attitude, if I could have it, but that was her attitude. And that challenged me when he shared that with me. Again, I don't think there's anything wrong with self-defense, but we've got to recognize 
If we're going to be who we say we're going to be, the day may come when we had better realize that we may have to endure that. And if we do, we better recognize the reason for it. And the reason for it is is that we might be brought before those who know nothing of Christ and stand there even bloody and battered and proclaim the goodness of God. It's easy to proclaim God's goodness when things are going well, when everybody's healthy, when the crops are looking good, when the hogs are all fat. But when things get tough, when people oppose us, when people even perhaps lay their hands on us, will we be willing to stand and proclaim the goodness of God? Christ did in fact say, turn the other cheek. Why did he say that? Because he wanted his people to be different. He wanted them to be marked in the world where they could stand and people say, what's going on with those people? Why are they different? And we could stand and say, I'm different because Christ is different. He who was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. He was there. He was at times silent in his suffering. How could he do that? I didn't even go over this before, but the Bible says he committed himself to him who judges righteously. What did Jesus know? He knew that God would vindicate him. He knew that he would be vindicated by his very person, who he was, God in the flesh. He knew that the Father would do all of his vindicating. When he rose from the dead, the proof would be in the pudding. These people would have no leg to stand on. He committed himself to the one and true and only judge. This is how we've got to look at all these kinds of things. I don't have to defend myself from every insult. I don't have to defend myself against every accusation. I don't have to defend myself against everyone that might come against me. Why? Because I know who God is and God will care for his people. This is so hard for me. Because I've even told my sons, you know, when you wrestle around with them, boys, if you hit me in the face, you better get low for a second because I can't promise you what's going to happen. If you, if you catch me in the face, just get, get out of the way because I might just react and give you one of those, right? You know what I'm talking about. Y'all may be more spiritual than me. I'm just telling the truth. Jesus promises us opposition. He promises us the potential that we could be even violently opposed. Are we prepared to trust God to vindicate us? The Bible goes on and tells us in relation to this last statement. He says, I don't do these things to other people. I require the same from them. I want you to hear this. He says, but I say to you, Love your enemies. Bless those that curse you. Do good to those who hate you. This is Matthew 5, 44, if I didn't say that. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? 
Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. We get the the idea sometimes that if someone else is going to do things in our direction, that that puts us in the position of being able to respond in kind without accountability. That's what we think a lot of times. The Bible says different. We're supposed to love our enemies. We're supposed to bless those who curse you. You see the difference, right? They're cursing. We're blessing. Do good to those that hate you. It's not that I'm, if, they, if they hate me, I'm going to hate them right back. If, they, if they're mean to me, I'm going to be mean right back to them. I say this ad nauseum in counseling over and over and over again. Somebody sinning against you does not give you a free pass to sin against them. You're still accountable for your sin. I'm still accountable for my sin. If somebody comes up to me after this service is over and and says something nasty to me, I don't like what you had to say tonight, and spits on my shoes. Now, I feel pretty good to give them an uppercut, put them on the ground, wouldn't it? Say something smart and hurt their feelings, cut them to the bone. But I'm, what I've done then is I have followed their invitation into sin. They've sinned against me and invited me to sin against them, and I've stepped right into it. And guess what? Now, instead of being one who can respond differently and perhaps it be used for them to be convicted and drawn to repentance, what have I done? I've placed myself in the position, i got to go repent before God now. I'm still accountable. We, as the people of God, do not have a license to sin, even in response to sin. We never get a free pass. We don't just greet the brethren only. We don't just love those who love us. We respond differently. I'll leave you with this question tonight, this thought. What shape would we be in if Jesus lived his life according to this kind of motto instead of according to who he was? You know what would have happened? Everybody on the planet would have been wiped off the planet because he would have judged us in our sin. Because we have wronged him in our sin. Those in that time and place who reviled him, who beat him, who mocked him, who opposed him, he was within all of his rights and responsibility as the judge of the universe to wipe them off the map. But Jesus walked in grace and love according to the will of the Father. The Father chose mercy. The Father chose love. There will come a day when all will be held accountable for their sins. That is is an absolute fact. But God has given us grace for the day. He's given us grace for those of us who are in Christ for eternity that we might live differently so that we can be used to glorify Him and be used to bring other people into the kingdom of God. So I would challenge you, 
watch John Wayne movies and enjoy them, right? Watch him shoot up a bunch of old outlaws and get excited about it. You can even watch the one where he sings with Dean Martin and Walter Brennan. I like that one the best. Did you notice he didn't sing? I don't think he was much of a singer. But let's not get our theology, let's not get our behavioral norms from somewhere else. Let's take our walking orders from the Master. Let, let me, let you have the courage to assess every action and instead, say, instead of it being just, this is the way I am, this is my ethos, this is my motto, this is how I've chosen to live, say, wait a second, is that the way that God would have me to live? Because I think we would arrive at different conclusions. I know that I would. Because I'm as redneck as the next guy. I'm as ready. I, you know, my daddy used to tell me, son, you'll fight at the drop of a hat. And most days you'll drop the hat. I pray I'm not like that anymore. But it's my instinct. We, are, as Christians, are not those who are called to live according to our instincts. We're to live according to our instructions. And so I challenge you, assess your life, assess your choices, assess uh, how it is we're going to live in light of a world that despises Christ, that hates God. How will we live differently? How will God use us to stand apart as we stand up for Him? Let's pray together. Father, I thank You for the day. I pray You would use Your Word. Lord, I know this is a different kind of message. I pray that You've blessed it. Father, I ask that you would convict me where I fall short in this when I allow my personal philosophies and thoughts to override your truth. God, that we might glorify you in all things. Lord, even in the difficult things, that we could glorify your name. Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for what he's done. We thank you for the example he's given. Give us grace to look more and more like him every day of our life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen and amen.